This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Tis the season for the good old-fashioned summer read. Among the most tried and true of that genre is the political thriller. And already, one of the most talked-about books this season is from an author with a unique inside view of our highest elective office. This morning, he's talking books and politics with our Mo Rocca. Bill Clinton is parading a whole new talent these days. I'm an old dog and this is a new trick. Clinton has written a thriller with the world's best-selling author, James Patterson. There's an attack on the presidential motorcade. If it happened, this is how it would happen. And one thing that happens to come up is impeachment. How do you look back at, at your impeachment? Well, I knew it wouldn't succeed. Later on Sunday morning, 
Bill Clinton on fiction and current White House reality. This week marks the 50th anniversary of one of the greatest shocks of the year, 1968, the assassination of presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy. Jim Axelrod will look back at what happened and what might have been. You're in the middle of these extraordinary, extraordinary people in this extraordinary time. To those who admired and even loved him, there was no one like Bobby Kennedy. I think that we can do better in the future. It's a story of what might have been, not about what happened, but what we lost when it happened. What did we lose? Hope. And now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. Ahead on Sunday morning, remembering Robert F. Kennedy. We'll have those stories and more when Sunday morning continues. The events of the year 1968 cast a shadow to this day. Not least, those gunshots that stunned our nation 50 years ago this week. Our cover story is reported by Jim Axelrod. But now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. Thank you. When Robert F. Kennedy stepped from the stage at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, his walk through the kitchen moments later would become the violent bookend to one of the most turbulent stretches in American history. I am announcing today my candidacy. Just three months earlier, Kennedy had announced he would take on the sitting president from his own party. I do not lightly dismiss the dangers and the difficulties of challenging an incumbent president. But these are not ordinary times. A short while later, with anti-Vietnam War sentiment spiking, Lyndon Johnson pulled out of the race. I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Do they know about Martin Luther King? And just four days after that... Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Finally, a few minutes after midnight on June 5th, 1968, America faced the murder of yet another Kennedy. Five shots. Journalist Pete Hamill, who helped subdue Robert Kennedy's assassin, says the wound America suffered that night has yet to heal. It's a story of what might have been, not about what happened, but what we lost when it happened. What did we lose? Hope. I want the Democratic Party and the United States of America to stand for hope instead of despair. My father gave people hope. He lifted them up. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend is the oldest of Robert and Ethel Kennedy's 11 children. She says people found that hope in the questions her father was asking. We have this great wealth, $800 billion a year. We have all of this military power. And yet, how do we use it? What do we do with it? How do we make moral choices? How do we help our fellow human being? That is the most meaningful thing you can do. And it was their faith in the answers he offered that helped him build a coalition that's implausible, if not impossible, to imagine today. 
he could speak to white working class men and women because they trusted him that he would fight for them. And he also fought for African Americans. If you talk to those who met him, you never sense that he felt he was better than you. He was with you. The story of Bobby Kennedy, as his loyalists tell it, is a tale of transformation. From hard-charging law and order young attorney, hunting communists on Joe McCarthy's staff in the early 1950s, to social justice warrior by the late 60s. He was not just a speaker. He would listen to what people were saying after the great wound of his brother's assassination. And he understood, I think, that part of him, although he came from the Irish, part of him was Jewish. Part of him is Latino. If I had a head to hair like that, I could get elected anyway. <laughs> For somebody as famous as he was, he was living his life, not performing it. A young senator from New York who used his bold-faced name, fame, and political capital to focus on the forgotten. Senator Robert Kennedy, the rich man's son, has come to Mississippi, the poorest state in the Union, to see the rural side of poverty. How did the trip to the Delta come about? By a miracle. <laughs> Marion Wright Edelman, a young lawyer working with the poor in Mississippi, was right there with Kennedy in April of 1967 and knew his power with the people he was meeting. In most shacks, you would see Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy's pictures. But Edelman says she was not prepared to like him because, as attorney general, Kennedy had authorized the wiretapping of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963. Still, there Kennedy was. In Mississippi, putting poverty on the map. Do you enjoy this course? Is it helping you? Yes, sir. I'm learning how to read and write pretty good. He was just shocked. Good luck to you. Thanks. Peter Edelman, who would meet Marion on the trip and later marry her, was a Kennedy aide. You see children with swelling bellies, with running sores. He said to me, I've been in third and fourth world countries and I haven't seen anything as terrible as this. For a citizen living here in the state of Mississippi, you're doing reasonably well. You don't run up against this kind of poverty. I watched him interact with children, and the thing that I grew to like most about him and to see that he was really absorbing it was his touch. He would rub a child's cheek, and that meant a lot to me. A lot of people in this room, aren't they? A little more than a year after that trip, Bobby Kennedy was gone. I, I didn't expect that to happen. Writer Pete Hamill is still haunting. Dear Bob, I had wanted to write you a long letter. So taken by RFK's potential, he had written him, begging him to get into the race. The fight you might make would be the fight of honor. I have to take my share of responsibility. He thought Bobby Kennedy uniquely positioned to address the divisions in America. When we dealt with Vietnam. If you won, the country might be saved. I think I've learned a lesson, and I think that from that lesson, that I think that we can do better in the future. Kennedy would campaign with that letter in his jacket pocket. It actually makes me remember those times. I read it now and I regret the part I had in making, if I did, in making him make the choice because of a young dope with a pistol. You do think about that part of it. I do. Did he ever express his own fear 
that he too might be assassinated? Never. Never. You think it was in there? He just didn't talk about it? I think it was in there. Because when I saw him that night, there was a kind of look on his face that was, I knew this was going to happen. Decades later, how Bobby Kennedy died is still raising questions. Last week, two of his children called for a new investigation into whether there was a second gunman. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. June 6, 1968. He was 42 years old. But what's being marked this week is the meaning of his life. As he said many times in many parts of this nation. 50 years ago, Robert Kennedy was eulogized by his brother Ted. Some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. A train carried his body from New York City to the nation's capital. The funeral train is an old tradition in American life. This is a familiar route. All along the way, there have been people along the track. That train ride was supposed to be three hours, and instead, it turned almost seven hours. Two million people came out. African Americans in Baltimore singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Nobody organized this. It was spontaneous. They stand, they wave, some of them are crying. What did he have that touched so many people? His love, his courage, and his ability to relate. There are plenty of people in this country who find the story of the Kennedys an exercise in grand-scale myth-making. But this Sunday morning, there are many others marking and mourning the night half a century ago when what may have been the brightest spark of political hope in their lifetimes was extinguished. It's hard to know exactly what heals. There's pain that lasts for 50 years. It's enormous sadness, enormous sense of loss. I'm not a believer that time heals all wounds at all. I think the wounds stay for a long time. It's playtime all over New York this summer. And as Michelle Miller now tells us, volunteers are the keys to its success. Spring is in full bloom. And in New York, there's something else in the air. It's this thing that sort of unexpectedly stops us in our tracks. It takes a lot to get New Yorkers to stop in their tracks, but this piano does that. In parks, and gardens, on boardwalks, and street corners, pianos are popping up like wildflowers. Oh, wow. They're the work of a group called Sing for Hope, which has placed hundreds of pianos all over the city. And the subway. Founders Camille Zamora and Monica Yunus say it's about more than music. What is the great takeaway 
what we're trying to do at Sync for Hope is give people opportunities to connect with people. Public art is nothing new. Remember those cows in Chicago? Or the murals dotting walls all over Philadelphia? New York's pianos are for the eyes, ears, even the soul. Without that baseline of hope and innovation and wellness that the arts allows for, you can't heal, you can't learn, you can't do a lot of the basic building blocks that make for a well world. Healing with sound, one note at a time. The pianos are mainly used uprights, purchased at a deep discount. But watch what happens. Each piano is decorated, some by the likes of designers Diane von Furstenberg and Isaac Mizrahi. Still, these pianos are for playing, except that is, when it rains. We have an army of piano buddies and they get notifications on their phones to go and <laughs> cover us pianos, yeah. yes, with a little, with rain, a little jacket. rain jacket that's attached to the back. The idea is an import from England, and these days, it's gone global. And it's an idea with star power. Late show band leader, John Batiste. I went to them. You no I went kidding. to them. I said, look, I know what y'all are doing. I believe in this. This is what the world needs. This is very important to the culture. He's more than a true believer. He's a member of the board. The context of where you experience music changes, and then that brings a new experience into your life, a rich experience. Most of the pianos will ultimately wind up in New York City schools, where they could have the greatest impact of all. You've called this an arts intervention. It's about social justice. We're in a city that is the arts mecca of our country in so many ways, and yet a third of the kids here don't have regular access to arts education. It makes us feel like some people actually care. They took their time from their life to make this piano for us. Since getting their piano, teacher Aaron Young at PS8 in Manhattan says, it's making beautiful music and a big difference. It's made a huge impact on kids that have struggled here. The more people they know care about them, the more likely they are to be successful in life. A true lesson in harmony. Special friends stay special, no matter their differences or the passage of time. Steve Hartman has a prime example. The audience at this preschool graduation in Augusta, Georgia, was full of parents, grandparents, and one very good friend. Dan Peterson is best friends with Nora Wood. Who's that? Nora's mom, Tara, says these two are absolutely inseparable. How about that, huh? She's wholly invested in him. She can't remember her life before him. And I'm not sure that he wants to remember his before her. Before he met Nora in 2016, Dan was severely depressed. 
His wife had just died, and he was grocery shopping for himself when Nora spotted him. As you can see on the security footage, she just randomly reached out to him, to this total stranger. She stood up and said, hi, old person, it's my birthday today. Hi, old person. She says this to this cranky old man. Yeah. And then had the audacity to demand a hug. I said, a hug? I said, absolutely. <laughs> Nora got her hug and then asked her mom to take a picture of her with her new friend. She zeroed in on him like a missile. And his little lip quivered and he was teared up and it was just sweet. And I said, you don't know. This is the first time for quite a while that I've been as happy. <laughs> After we first told this story, we thought for sure the love would fade. Are these rock tomatoes? But here we are, a year and a half later, and they are still seeing each other at least once a week. Yeah. It's remarkable. I mean, I think a lot of people thought that it wouldn't continue, but they're pure magic. What's the reason you like Mr. Dan? He's sweet. He's sweet? He's sweet like a peppermint. Ooh. Peppermint. It makes you want a peppermint, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> but the surest sign of their connection came just a couple months ago. Nora was hugging Dan, which she always does. But this time was different. I couldn't get her to let go. Because he hadn't answered the door right away, Nora was just relieved to find him safe. Every time I see you, I get happy. She was crying. What's it feel like to be loved that much? I think you can see. We can see. I love you. <laughs> I love your family. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. Once you've been president of the United States, what do you do for an encore? A question Bill Clinton was happy to answer in a chat with Mo Rocca. Here's something you might expect a former president to do lead last weekend's hometown Memorial Day Parade. But Bill Clinton has just done something else you might not expect of an ex-president. To me, it was, first of all, exciting, and because I'd never done it before, uh, I told everybody I'm an old dog and this is a new trick. That new trick? Writing a political thriller, teaming up with author James Patterson. You've had a few bestsellers now. Yeah, I mean, a couple. Amazing. Yeah, I think Keith keeps working out. He's going to mount some. Yeah. Actually, Patterson is already the best-selling author in the world, with more than 300 million books sold. I've consumed literally thousands and thousands of thrillers, political novels, all this kind of stuff. You know, he's just good at it. But I wanted it to be real. I want people, I don't want anybody able to say, oh, this is just made-up bull, you know? The result? The president is missing, in which the president takes on an international terrorist plot, at times single-handedly. No, I shout, pointing at the computer screen. In the audiobook, actor Dennis Quaid is the voice of the president. Every decision I make today is a risk. We are on the high wire without a net. 
I make the wrong decision either way, and we're screwed. The president goes rogue, getting in the middle of a shootout at Nationals Park in Washington, and another shootout on the 14th Street Bridge. But Clinton and Patterson insist it's perfectly plausible. The worst possible attack on the United States happens in this book. And if it happened, this is the way it would happen. There's a traitor in the White House. If it happened, this is authentically how it would happen. If the president has grapefruit for breakfast in the, in the, in the residency, it would, it would happen something like this. We swapped these drafts back and forth. And I'd read something and I'd say, well, I don't think this works. This wouldn't really happen. But we've got to make something happen and still keep it exciting. And it's like, how dumb is that, right? The terrorist's weapon is a cyber attack that could wipe out our entire country's internet, and with it, the systems that control virtually everything. I'll say it to anyone, I say. Whoever is responsible for this virus, we will find out who did this. And if that virus detonates, we will consider it an act of war. Clinton and Patterson see it as not just a page-turner, but as a warning about dangers they say we only got a taste of during the 2016 election. We had a real serious problem with this cyber terrorism. They could go way beyond fixing the elections. And those problems will happen faster if we allow our elections to continue to be tampered with by others. Do you think there was any tampering in 2016 with results? I don't know. I don't know. You look at our defense budget, and we've got this much spent on let's stop bombs and this much spent on let's deal with cyber terrorism, and it should be the opposite. Right, because you described water supply, I mean, obviously financial systems, all these things that are vulnerable. Hospital in, records. In, hospital records. Think, but there's nothing. Do I want Americans to be reading this book thinking, God, let's see, I've got a bank account, I've got a savings account, I've got a 401k. The book is written from the point of view of the president. I think a lot of people are going to read this book and think, oh, this is President Bill Clinton. We didn't design him to be me, but he doesn't say things that I think are false. He says things that I think are true, true to himself, things he believes. Still, you can be forgiven for mixing up the two presidents. The book kicks off with the fictional president, Jonathan Lincoln Duncan, facing removal from office. Listen to me. I'm going to say this. You'd again. think impeachment would be the last thing William Jefferson Clinton would want to revisit when he reflects on his time in office. Because the fictional president, and it comes up early in the book, is under threat of impeachment, how do you look back at your impeachment? Well, I knew it wouldn't succeed. It wasn't a pleasant experience, but it was a fight that I was glad to undertake. They knew there was nothing impeachable. And so we fought it to the end, and I'm glad. It's been 20 years since Clinton was impeached, then acquitted by the Senate. But the repercussions reverberate to this day. Is it your view that, that the President Clinton should have stepped down at that time, given the allegations? Yes, I think that is the appropriate response. In this Me Too age, some, including members of his own party, like New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, have said Clinton should have stepped down because of the Monica Lewinsky affair. But since we're talking about that period, what did you think six months ago when Senator Gillibrand said he should have resigned? Well, I just disagree with her. I mean, I think, you know, just 
you have to really ignore what the context was then. But, you know, she's living in a different context and she did it for different reasons. So I, uh, but I just disagree with her. As for the investigation led by Robert Mueller swirling around the current commander in chief. We now call it Spygate. Do you think that the press has been fair to President Trump? I think they have tried by and large to cover this investigation based on the facts. I think if the roles were reversed, now this is me just talking about it based on my experience. If there were a Democratic president and these facts were present, most people I know in Washington believe impeachment hearings would have begun already. If, and, this, if and, there were a Democrat in power yes. right now. And most people I know believe that the press would have been that harder, harder. But these are serious issues. You hear from Trump supporters who say, you know, the press slobbered all over President Obama. He could do no wrong. And now this guy can do no right. What gives? That there's a kind of whiplash. Well, there is, they did treat him differently uh, than other Democrats and Republicans because they, Why? there was the political press. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Did, they liked him. And they liked having the first African-American president. And he was a good president, I think. I don't agree with President Trump's assessment of his service. Nor do the authors agree with the current president's rhetorical style. President Trump, this is just factual, is fond of personal insults. I mean, he still refers to Mrs. Clinton as crooked as Hillary in tweets. It's been effective for him. He, it's unbelievable that he became president, but he figured some things out. And I think most people do not like these tweets. They just wish that it wouldn't go that way. I don't like all this. I, I couldn't be elected anything now because I just don't like embarrassing people. My mother would have whipped me for five days in a row when I was a little boy if I spent all my time bad-mouthing people like this. America will be greater than ever. Clinton, of course, thought he was going to be the first ever first husband. And he says he's reminded of 2016 and the divisions in the country whenever he goes for a walk. There's a Trump supporter here in town that I walked past his house with my dogs. He had a locker up poster in his front window and I said to him, I hope you're gonna make those. If you're gonna do that to my wife, you make sure the prisons are comfortable because you're gonna have a lot of company of your supporters in there. Right. <laughs> and you know what he said? I was just trying to be civil to him and he said, Obama and Hillary started the second civil war. So there's division. But there, underneath that, there's a core of fundamental decency that can be really skewed when people feel abused, left out, or looked down on. Our democracy cannot survive its current downward drift into tribalism, extremism, and seething resentment. Yes, their new book is a thriller about a chief executive who's practically a superhero. This is our time. But the 42nd president of the United States believes they have something deeper to say about why the office matters. I want people to see the presidency as a job and a hard one. And it matters who gets it. It matters how they do it, which I hope is a subtext of this. That is, I hope it's really exciting to people but I hope when they put it down, they think, you know, we got a good kind of government here. We don't want to mess it up. In the words of President Duncan, May God bless 
the United States of America, and all who call it home. Thank you. Sleep well. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.